from Pacifica Radio in San Francisco. This is Flashpoints. I'm Dennis Bernstein. Today on the show, Greg Palace is back for another edition of the Election Crimes Bulletin. Well, looks like the Oath Keepers are on their way to jail, a bunch more of them. But does the AG have the spine to take on the former president? Also, reflections on the Vietnam War 50 years after. We'll speak with investigative historian Robert Bazanko. All this and more coming up straight ahead on Flashpoint. Stay tuned. And you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. My name is Dennis Bernstein. This is your daily investigative news magazine. We broadcast every weekday from 5 to 6 over the Pacifica Radio Network. And we are happy to have you along. And uh, we're going to begin today's show with another edition of the Election Crimes Bulletin with Greg Palast. This whole election is being rigged. The election is being rigged. It's totally rigged. Yes, Donald, it's rigged because your cronies rigged it. So says Rolling Stone investigative reporter Greg Pallast. You're removing black voters from the voter rolls just so you can win this election? We will treat those people from January 6th fairly. And if it requires pardons, we will give them pardons. So you didn't call him, but you challenged his right to vote or have his ballot challenged. Sir, get out of my house. Okay, I will get Get out out of your house. house. I just... It's now time for your Election Crimes Bulletin with Greg Pallast. Well, this is Dennis Bernstein. Greg Pallast joins us again. Uh, You'd think maybe we'd get a break, that uh, election crimes would uh, go on vacation for a week or two. But no, the crimes continue and the battle for your vote continues. And Greg Pallast, as always, is on the front lines. But Greg, let's start. Uh, uh, in D.C., there was another series of convictions of the Oath Keepers uh, for sedition, and uh, we're talking about serious penalties. Do you suppose that this actually could be a setup for uh, an indictment of the former president? Uh, Does this attorney general have the courage, I guess, through his surrogate now? Or are they actually too late? Well, I don't know if they're too late, but I will tell you this that um, these are small fry, and these convictions don't lead up to the President of the United States. We seem to be going down the food chain instead of up. Remember, Stuart Rhodes and uh, Kelly Meggs, his, his partner, they were the founders of Oath Keepers. They've already been convicted. You know, they face up to 20 years for seditious conspiracy. And uh, these two, now these are their four flunkies. I don't want to understate them because flunkies can kill you too. Uh, they kept a uh, cache of arms in Virginia waiting to take into the Capitol. Three of the four of them uh, went to the Capitol, broke in, and they're, they're, they didn't use an Abrams tank to attack the Capitol. They showed up in a golf cart, I kid you not, to get through the kind of you know, riot congestion. Uh, so that was their, uh, that was their means, uh, method of invasion. Not exactly D-Day. Um, but they were convicted. They were convicted um, of two things. They were convicted of seditious conspiracy and obstruction of the conspiracy to obstruct the government proceeding. And if I may be allowed a moment of editorial con- uh, um, comment, 
using seditious conspiracy is really dangerous stuff, and I don't think people, uh, the you know, the liberal press, they're, they're all happy about the Oath Keepers facing these characters facing time in prison. And anyone who has a cache of guns ready to take into the Capitol to stop a proceeding, these are dangerous people. But this whole business is a very wide thing, seditious conspiracy, you know, to to um, attack a government building in, in any form or to try to delay a government proceeding. It's pretty wide and nebulous. And if you remember your history, um, for those of you who weren't on reefer during that class, uh, we had the Alien and Sedition Acts uh, um, put into law by John Adams uh, because there were some people who objected to the Constitution as written. Um, and so they wanted to put people in jail for that. And Thomas Jefferson, he became president and, uh, and put an end to that law. It, it, uh, it expired. So the history of using sedition laws to punish criminal behavior. They didn't need it. They had the obstruction uh, charge. They, are, they committed violence. They had weapons. There were weapons charges. They were crossing state lines with weapons to create mayhem. There are several things that they could have used which Americans would recognize as, as, as real crimes. But opening up the door to seditious conspiracy, remember that the Trump administration had people in Portland charged with cons- uh, seditious conspiracy during uh, protests there because they had uh, they were protesting around a federal building and a few got in. The the big difference, by the way, is that there's no question that these characters had a particular government function that they intended to stop. That is the certification of the vote for president, and that isn't exactly shoplifting. I will admit it's it's probably as close as we're ever going to get to a case of seditious conspiracy. But I just worry about opening that door, especially with these small fry who could be sent to prison for decades on on the charges they already have and on other conceivable charges. Hmm. Uh, yeah. Well, so, it is, so I'm sorry uh, if I'm not joining. Were convictions. This, this conviction, but yeah. uh, they were convicted also on the on what I consider real criminal charges, which is obstructive of of a government. Uh, Proceedings, and it's not just some government proceeding. This wasn't a discussion of, uh, about. The yeah, and they should have been arrested the when they were doing it, and they should have yeah, been arrested when real, they were doing it. Absolutely. For another reason is that we had gotten all their cell phone material, etc. That we had gotten them right there, and possibly being able to name the rest, because uh, we don't know who's been, who has scampered away. And by the way, again, these guys. We're the so-called bodyguards for um, Roger Stone. Uh, you know, so, it's, like I said, we seem to be going down the food chain instead of up. But we may hear some different news out of Georgia. Well, let's, let's talk about that because, uh, you know, there's been a little bit of quiet. Uh, obviously, the battle is never uh, going to end here, and it's only going to be more, more brutal. And as you reported, Greg, uniquely, mm-hmm. uh, the, the, the vote suppressors have already been uh, profoundly effective at suppressing the vote and doing it under the corporate uh, media uh, you know, uh, wire. Yeah, I mean, one of the, the issues here is the overturning of the vote of the public. But 
And when they say Ryan Kemp stood up to that, no, he he signed SB202 in Georgia, which based, which all but it absolutely was a direct cause of a million vote drop in Georgia. So here's a guy who basically blocked a million voters, almost all of them voters of color and young people, and mainly out of the Atlanta and Savannah areas. Um, and we've discussed that, but it's so here you have a guy who really has blocked votes. And if he'd been just a smidgen, you know, if, if that law had been in effect before the election, Trump would have been president. And the, and the U.S. media said SB 202 is not a Jim Crow law. And no one would have complained if, if Trump had stolen the election form that way. But remember, he signed SB 202, uh, Brian Kemp, the governor of Georgia, didn't sign it uh, until after the 2020 election after the 2021 January Senate runoff to prevent the re, you know to uh, again basically to do what Trump wants but the the law wasn't in place at the time but we do have so yes so there's a big problem at how the US press is covering it that the only danger was from these wackos and you know now they also are applauding we got the guy who you know put his feet up on Pelosi's desk I don't know whether that was the guy with the horns or not but uh, you know, he's yeah, the guy with the horns. He got 20 years. Yeah. yeah, but you know what? You know, again, his threat to uh, our democracy is minor compared to the threat of Brian Kemp, who's now, you know, uh, again, uh, the Wall Street Journal. Let me, um, Greg, Greg let me let me just come back to that. Let me let me just come back to the sedition for a moment. Oh, these mics are mm-hmm. screwed up a little bit today. But let me okay. let me um, uh, now you may be right uh, at the lower level not to press for sedition. But in fact, isn't that exactly what Trump is guilty of? Well, I mean, uh, if we're if talking sedition, law, he is the one you want to use that charge. Well, it's it's about – now, here's the interesting language of the uh, seditious conspiracy law, which is – you know, which goes back to the Civil War, 1861, signed by Lincoln. Um, it is someone – one charge is delaying an official government function, which might sound pretty minor, except what Trump clearly was happy to do was um, use allow the use of force to delay the certification of the vote, one of the most important procedures in American government. Maybe the most important procedure of American government is to uh, certify an election. And violence was used. He delayed stopping the violence. So the question is, would seditious conspiracy apply in that case? Uh, there are other there are other statutes which I think are are clearer, but don't expect anything very frankly from the Justice Department. They're very squeamish about um, uh, indictments of a sitting president, and you know Merrick Garland is the definition of uh, our Attorney General is the definition of squeamish. I think we may see something different from uh, the grand jury that's being impaneled now in um, in Georgia. I think that they'll be in panel. We have to wait for a judge to review the um, the first grand jury's report, and then they have a, an indi- a jury that would be uh, have the power to indict. The last grand jury did not have power to indict; they had power to investigate. And um, but there is something, by the way, that just came out of the January sixth committee, which is very important for uh, Fannie 
Willis's in, um, possible prosecution. Yes, Fanny Willis is the Atlanta, that is Fulton County, prosecutor. In that, her strong, her, a weak case would be the phone call between the president and the Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, which transcript I've heard many times. Um, and he's pretty careful. Remember, he's not a lawyer. He's saying, find me 11,780 votes, giving him one more vote than Biden. But he's not directing him to change or disqualify legitimate votes. Now, other conversations he had, for example, with the deputy secretary of state, that may be different. But we don't have that recording. We only have the Raffensperger recording. And the Raffensperger recording He's basically saying, look, there was all this cheating you ought to investigate. There's a way – it'd be almost impossible to get a conviction of Trump, and I doubt if she'd be able to get even an indictment of Trump for that call. However, the real danger for Donald Trump is in the other part of her investigation, which is – we've talked about it's really subtle for most Americans on this one, which is the creation of a fake set of – of electors, or what Trump and his gang and Giuliani call the alternative set of electors. And remember, you don't vote for Trump or Biden. You don't vote for president. You vote for these people called electors, whose names may have even been hidden on your ballot, as they are, for example, in California. You have to kind of look up who the electors are. Uh, You get people who are committed to certain candidates. But that is the process in our Constitution. Here's Here's the question, though. When when uh, John Eastman, the attorney who is probably is has a good chance of being indicted as well, came up with the idea that just use an just have a bunch of people say that they are the properly elected electors and have them as the alternatives. Mike Pence rejects the duly elected electors who've been certified, and you have these alternative these alternates who can then vote and say that they represent the voters of Georgia. The, the problem with that is we've had contested elections in the United States. In fact, we've had you know, Trump-like uh, operators who were just smarter, who used alternative sets of electors, but they were electors. That is, they were on a ballot. These people who are the alternative electors for Donald Trump in Georgia, not one of them was on the ballot. Not one of them was an elector that anyone voted for. And again, we don't tend to know the names of the electors. We vote for Trump or Biden, but you're actually voting for this slate of people. None of these people ran for office. That is, you run for elector. It's like Dennis Bernstein saying, well, I'm the alternative mayor of San Francisco. Well, Dennis, you got to get on the ballot. You can complain that the election was stolen. But you can't claim an election was stolen if you were never on the ballot. These people were not on the ballot. They signed and certified papers saying that they were elected, and here's the killer line. When Rona McDaniel met with, heard from Eastman with the president sitting next to him from the Oval Office with this, con, with this wacky idea of alternative electors, McDaniel memorialized the whole scheme in a memo called the Elector Recap. And when she called Trump's assistant, one of the executive assistants in the White House, and said, has Trump seen the Elector Recap memo? The assistant said, he's reading it now. 
It's on his desk. He's reading it now. Now, if Trump really read it now, that little tiny thing of reading that memo now, then he's a co-conspirator. Not only a co-conspirator, but like really the ringleader because he's the guy who's pushing it. If he actually right. knew that he was presenting false electors, his only excuse, I think, would be, I'm not a lawyer. I listened to this guy, Eastman. He's a professor at Claremont, a law professor, and, and – Yes, my other lawyers disagreed with him, but to me, that's a disagreement among lawyers. So there might be some difficulty there, but that's the hook, which is that he was involved. And, and this is in where just election. and this is where Jenny Thomas comes in because she was pushing yeah. this fake elector scheme, right? That's what uh, everybody is uh, troubled about in terms of her participation, particularly around this, uh, trying to cajole and uh, influence people to be alternative electors, right? Right, and and this is going to be a problem because if this ends up with the Supreme Court and you have the wife of a justice who's actually suggested participation in this conspiracy and has been encouraging the co-conspirators, whether she's named in an indictment, uh, she's named, I'm, I'm sure that Thomas will have to step out, but I but I think that her kind of cheerleading from the side, and she herself is not an attorney, um, I think it would be hard to indict her, whether they name her. You know, she could be named as an unindicted co-conspirator as part of the kind of cabal pushing this this scheme. Um, and again, I think a lot of it will come down to whether these people understood that the scheme was illegal. You know, I think... Right. You know, breaking into the Capitol with guns, I think you can pretty much figure you've broken the law. Um, but alternative electors, that's a that's a difficult one. All right. Now, let me, we're just running out of time, and I just want to hit this other thing. We've talked about okay. this before, that the idea of trying to prosecute Trump on the documents he took home, remember? And we mm -hmm. said, oh... We better watch out for that because everybody takes documents home. Um, well, now, apparently, that, that could be the gotcha that got Biden, right? Because everybody does do it. My my favorite part of that, though, Greg, is the, the various corporate networks, particularly MSNBC, bent over so back, so far backwards, they broke their own backs to try and cover for Biden, and they can't, and they keep coming and coming and coming, file after file. Uh, really, uh, it just, I think and well, everything yeah. was, go on, please. Well, I mean, yes, this is, uh, okay, obviously we have the hypocrisy issue. Be very careful. That's why I'm concerned about seditious conspiracy convictions because they would like because trump well, tried to use it against the left so we have to be very careful that's why i'm you know, bringing it up for the yeah. goose is sauce for the gander now of course there is a uh, you know any any lawyer is going to tell you there was a big difference between the biden paper stories right and uh trump because trump literally resisted and he apparently lied the question is did he knowingly lie that he turned over all the papers when he didn't did he lie about the contents and there's some suggestion he still hasn't turned over all the papers they have empty file folders so i mean there's some real questions i mean in trump's case he literally refused they said hey we found he got some but he declassified he them didn't he greg he declassified them 
Well, you, you can't declassify the them after you're no longer. If you're no longer <laughs> yeah. president, yeah. you lose the fairy dust wand that declassifies documents. And I think even Biden's going to have a tough time, like after the fact, not saying, "Oh, you're declassified." <laughs> it's like it's not like some holy water you can sprinkle. There's a process right. for declassifying documents. Even the president cannot wave a wand and say, "This is declassified." There is a process, and Biden knows he's too late for that process to get himself off the hook. And certainly, Trump, um, someone's got to tell him it doesn't say Air Force One on it on the outside of his plane. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's Greg Palast. We do this weekly. It's the Election Crimes Bulletin. And believe me, there's plenty of crimes coming up for the next uh, election or two, and we're going to be on it. Thank you, Greg. GregPalast.com. Check it out. He is on the cutting edge of fighting for your vote. Thanks, Greg. You're very welcome, Dennis. Bye. Thank you. And you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. We're going to take a look at uh, Peru. That's what we're going to do after this break. Listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. My name is Dennis Bernstein. This is your daily investigative news magazine. And uh, we are happy to welcome back to these airwaves Camilo Perez Bustillo. He's the executive director of the San Francisco Bay Area chapter of the NLG. He's deeply engaged in regional politics and he's uh, been looking at Peru uh, for us. And, uh, well, uh, so much is going on, Camilla. We know that this is a one more deeply resource-rich country. And once again, it's my impression that the sort of the corporate elite of the hemisphere are doing everything in their power to undermine this people's revolution because of the natural resources that the United States just loves to suck in. Absolutely, Dennis. You know, I just want to thank you for making time on the program because there's very little attention being given to what's going on in Peru, and it's absolutely of central importance. It's crucial to the work we do here at the National Lawyers Guild, both in the Bay Area nationally and internationally, because what it has to do with is the U.S. role in Latin America and all of the ways that plays out, you know, the way that's evolved historically, 
which is obviously what we encounter at the border and at all the borders of Latin America. But now what we're looking at is another kind of border, which is the issue of the current status of human rights in our hemisphere and the way in which the U.S. is undermining human rights everywhere we turn. The key thing here is that, you know, we had almost simultaneously in December these attempted coups in Peru and Brazil. In Brazil, the coup was unsuccessful. In Peru, it was successful and removed the democratically elected president, Pedro Castillo. That's more than 50 days ago. That was in early December. The bottom line is the democratically elected leftist president of Peru, Pedro Castillo, is currently in jail. And the reason that he is being held is because his regime was considered to pose a threat to the established interests both within Peru and beyond that want to continue to exploit that country. Now, this is not, though, about Pedro Castillo specifically. What we're talking about now is the defense of democracy in Peru. He's the democratically elected president. He's sitting in jail. He was removed illegitimately. Speaking of, you know, an election crimes bulletin, he was elected and now he's in jail. And what emerged in between, especially in the last 10 days, is essentially a national mass popular uprising in Peru demanding that, you know, democracy be restored. And again, it's not about Pedro Castillo. It's about whether the Peruvian people can exercise their rights to self-determination, to defend their land, territory, and resources against the depredations of U.S. military interests, specifically the U.S. Southern Command, which includes Peru, and Peru is especially strategic in geopolitical terms because it's a country that has an extensive coastline along the Pacific, but all mineral reserves... The leading place in Latin America of mineral reserves is Peru. The leading place of the mining of those resources, you know, of course, historically, this included, you know, the silver that the Spanish Empire stole from Inca civilization, you know, the sort of parallel conquest of Peru that accompanied that of Mexico. We probably heard of, you know, the extraordinary um, wealth that the Europeans uh, took away, that the Spanish took away from Peru, leaving the country in poverty, as they did with Haiti. But it's also about U.S. military geopolitical interests in the Andean region as a whole and in Latin America. You're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. We're speaking with a good friend of this show, Camila Perez-Bustillo, and we're talking about, we're getting a very different and deep view of what's going on in Peru. You know, Camilo, this is starting to remind me of uh, what happened after Aristide, President John Bertrand Aristide's first election in Haiti. The powers that be went absolutely crazy and did everything in their corporate power to undermine and destabilize that country, which we have now seen. 
This, you know, this, this, uh, what, what are we at, the 200th uh, birthday of the Monroe Doctrine here? And life goes exactly. on. Exactly. And, and that's one reason we're sort of bringing this, this case, this study, you know, to your, to your attention, the attention of those who are listening, because we want to continue to collaborate with you, with this space, and with our members and supporters and sustainers here in the, in the Bay Area throughout this year to call attention to the 200th anniversary of the Monroe Doctrine and why that is not just a historical commemoration, but is actually a way for us to hone in, to focus on what's unfolding right now as we speak on the ground in Latin America. The coups in Brazil and Peru were within the same time period, were deeply interconnected. It's absolutely clear that let's let's call it a Trump international was involved in helping orchestrate the attempted coup in Brazil down to the level of emulating the hashtag for January 6th. The events took place on January 8th. But I mean, the, the bottom line is, it was all about essentially imitating the model of January 6th in the U.S., but it's the same forces that removed Castillo from power in their Peruvian version about a month before that. And so all of this is interconnected, and this is the new form that U.S. intervention takes. We're not seeing yet, and hopefully we won't, and we can try to stop it if we do, a military intervention by the U.S., But what we do know is that the U.S. Southern Command has specifically highlighted these unfolding movements in Peru and among its neighbors, in Ecuador, in Colombia, in Brazil, in Chile. They're looking at that entire triangle of concern for them. And what it's about is a threat both to U.S. geopolitical and military interests and the corporate interest in mining, and specifically of lithium, which is one of the most important resources present in the ground in Peru. You know, meanwhile, what we have is people mobilizing from throughout Peru in the streets of Lima this past weekend and being met with savage repression in scenes that were directly reminiscent of what happened in Chile in 1973. Of course, yet another case of an elected president like in Haiti being removed because of what supposedly they they uh, threatened in terms of U.S. interests. We also saw the one of the oldest universities in Latin America, which means one of the oldest ones in the world, the National University of San Marcos in Lima, Peru, the campus invaded by military police and over 200 people arrested. We saw images, and they're all over the international media now, of young women, young men, students being dragged out from their dormitories, from their classrooms and libraries this past weekend as part of this overall repression. Meanwhile, people are mobilizing from throughout Peru to establish a permanent presence in Lima, a permanent encampment, until Dina Baluarte, the interim president, is removed. And what the demand is, is for national elections 
to be sped up. They wouldn't be scheduled for another three years for them to be sped up and held as soon as possible. Uh, what's being called out is the illegitimacy of the Congress that replaced the elected president with an unelected interim president. But also the demand is for a national constituent assembly to write a new constitution. So what we're looking at is the re-foundation of the Peruvian state finally in service to its most excluded majorities, especially of indigenous origin. Yes. Now, listen, we only have about 90 seconds, but we can't uh, let you go without just getting a quick hit on your uh, take on the latest border tragedy. This policy we're talking about uh, can be the U.S.-Mexico border becomes, as you know, a barometer for the intensity of the suffering and the wars and the kinds of policy that the United States fosters down south. Absolutely. And for example, one of the top three nationalities that we see at the border is now people fleeing Peru. This was leading up to the coup that happened, but certainly that's intensified since then. So this has a direct reflection, a direct resonance, an echo at the border. The bottom line is what we see at the border, particularly in the mistreatment currently, the abuse of people of Haitian, Cuban, and Nicaraguan origin, in addition to those from Venezuela, what we see is the Biden administration cracking down and essentially nullifying the possibility of seeking asylum on U.S. territory at the border for people coming from those countries. Countries which, of course, have been the victims of reiterated U.S. intervention and aggression. So it's absolutely clear that mass migration at the border is the direct fruit of U.S. policy. And we're going to see that play out, sadly, as to Peru as well. Absolutely. Well, listen, um, please be careful. And we always appreciate the great information from you, Camilo Perez-Bustillo, whose who's day job is executive director of the San Francisco Bay Area chapter of the National Lawyers Guild. And he is a good friend to this show and to all of us. Great information. Uh, Camilo, please come back. We're going to do an expanded look at what's going on in the region, and uh, we're going to need you. Thank you. And we'll be connecting to, uh, you know, compas who are on the ground in Peru and who are of Peruvian origin in the U.S. Thank you, Dennis. We'll work on that together. Thanks so much to all of you Beautiful. for listening. I'm excited about that. All right. Um, what a privilege to work with somebody like Camilo. And what a privilege it is to have him as our translator, as our bridge into a story that the mainstream corporate press doesn't even get close to. Not near it. Ah, you're listening to Flashpoints on KPFA Pacific Radio. When we come back, we're going to be uh, reflecting on uh, the Vietnam War 50 years after. Stay with us.
Minus eight, Thea, on Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. Really wonderful music. And thanks, Mike, for making it possible. What a collection Mike has. What he knows about music, I wish I could know. You're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. I'm wandering a little bit. Really happy to welcome back to these airwaves a good friend of uh, the show, Professor Robert Bozenko. He is a professor of U.S. foreign policy at the University of Houston. He currently co-hosts the Green and Red podcast, which discusses politics and history. And recently it's been discussing politics and history with Noam Chomsky. Congratulations on that marvelous interview. Professor? Thank you. Thank you. He's Noam is very generous and he's talked to us quite a bit and it's always, as you know, uh, you know, a great thrill and you just learn so much. Absolutely. He really it's sort of like he he fits it in there. Intense to the point, never wavering, consistent as it goes. We're happy to have you though back with us too. We 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 sort of kicked off this program on Friday with an amazing tribute um, uh, to, well, Kent State. Uh, We used it uh, in the context of the uh, death of David Corsby, who wrote the story, the song, as you know, um, uh, about Kent State, Ten Soldiers, and Nixon coming. This became like the, the, the anthem of our generation, or my generation, I should say. Not, let, let me not make you older than you are, Professor. Uh, but the Vietnam War changed the way this country thinks. And it, you know, people kept referring all kinds of politicians, and not another Vietnam. This isn't, that's because it, it really was um, something that uh, left an imprint on U.S. society, and we had a whistleblower like Daniel Ellsberg to make sure everybody understood the level of the lie. You want to give us your sense as a historian, as an investigative historian, I, I guess that's what I called you, I hope that's okay. Um, that's give us a sense of Vietnam. Um, sure, there's a, obviously a lot there, and the reason you know we're talking uh, is that this Friday will be the 50th anniversary of the peace treaty that, you know, finally ended the U.S. war in Vietnam. I think 50 years later, I mean, we know that Vietnam happened and, you know, there's movies about it and it's on TV shows and, you know, we make references to, to the music and I do the same thing in class. I'll play songs like, you know, Ohio and, and a lot of other anti-war music. And I think um, it's become this kind of afterthought, but, but the reality is it was just an incredibly brutal and criminal war. And it really, uh, uh, you know, kind of internally inside the United States, it really made so many people wake up and, and see a much different country than they've been, you know, told exist and they've been taught. You know, this this has started about 15, 20 years after the end of World War II, and the United States had come out of World War II, you know, as this great champion of freedom and, you know, the most powerful country in the world. And, you know, uh, the media was buying into it. And so... You know, there were communists everywhere. You had red scares and a very patriotic country. 
and you know people were kind of taught to you know respect and obey authority and and that the u.s was always kind of you know on the side of the good guys and was trying to preserve freedom and you know you had to stop the communists whether they be in you know guatemala or cuba or wherever and vietnam really kind of you know pulled that curtain away after uh, you know not immediately you know when the war started i think that propaganda was still there but you know not long after you know by 1965 or 1966 because of students and because of some politicians, then, of course, you know, obviously activists like Noam Chomsky started to tell a different message and soldiers started coming back and talking about what was really going on there. <clears throat> and it really, you know, kind of blew the country apart, you know, as as, as you know. Um, and so I think that's the kind of point. Oh, go ahead. No, 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 please continue. Well, no, I was going to say, I think that's the point that we kind of have lost now where it's become... I think it's become kind of nostalgia, you know, now. <clears throat> oh, wasn't that great music or what a great movie or, hey, you know, have you seen Platoon or whatever? And we kind of, I think we're losing sight of what, what it actually meant and what we what we knew at the time and what we learned at the time from it. Well, you know, there's so many things that come to mind. Um, I remember uh, the lottery and uh, mm. sitting around with eight or ten people and listening to, for our fate, the lottery mm-hmm. was who was going to go and die in Vietnam, get a high number, you, you're, you're looking good, you get a low number, you're screwed. Mm-hmm. Uh, those kinds of things, that, that really left an impact. I remember in 1966, I was ready to join the Marines or the CIA and turn the clock back on the communists. Wow. By 1968, I was a marshal for mm-hmm. the first march on Washington. Mm-hmm. And I, I think uh, two things happened. Uh, I, I'd love you to comment on both of them. One is that Vietnam became like a testing ground for the new sort of uh, search and destroy methods of the United States government. Uh, the idea to, you know, f- to burn down, to use any kind of chemistry, any kind of weapon to level a population. You know, so we heard about the pacification uh, program and things like that that blew our minds. Um, and and I, I think that it, it also was about, um, you know, the United States getting just a slight taste of what it, means to be in a war that cost American lives Mm -hmm. in the, I'm talking about in the, in the era of the sixties and the seventies and the, and the boomers pro all the war wars that were going to end all the wars. Sure. Yeah. I mean, World War II, you had, you know, kind of World War II was not as morally ambiguous, right? You had Germany and the Nazis and the Holocaust. And so this was kind of, you know, America was able to assume that mantle. But Vietnam was very different, uh, you know, as you just pointed out. And the United States had been preparing for this, like, war in Europe against the communists. And then all of a sudden, there's this insurgency in a country where nobody even knew where it was. I think there were probably maybe a dozen Americans who could speak Vietnamese, you know, in 1960. And the U.S. knew very little about it. 
And um, all of a sudden, you know, you're sending money there initially, but that's not really working. So pretty soon, you know, in the early 60s, Kennedy started sending in helicopters and armor and napalm and Agent Orange and, uh, you know, close air support and, and armor. And all of a sudden, you know, the, the media is starting to write about, you know, this increasing American role in Vietnam. By 1963, there were 16,000 American troops there. Then there's a coup where the government, the, the people the U.S. had put in the power and were supporting were overthrown and killed. And all of a sudden, you know, there's 80,000 American troops there by 1964. And as you pointed out, that the type of war, you know, they were waging was, you know, it was, it was brutal. It was bloody. It was dirty. Um, just leveling entire villages. Something that I think is important, and, and Noam Chomsky pointed out in the interview, which, you know, it's on Green and Red Podcast if, if you want to check it out. But uh, um, most of the attacks were, were occurring in the South. You know, the United States had divided Vietnam in half in 1954. Most of the war took place in the country the U.S. had created. Its ally, the United States, was attacking its own country, essentially. You know, destroying villages, firefights, B-52s. I mean that a B fifty two is a, is a, it, it can unleash a, a bombing you know sort it, it can unleash a bombing pattern of one by two miles square so two square miles B fifty twos were created to fight wars in Europe and and they're being flown in a country that's like the size of New Mexico and you know they're they're using B fifty two the strategic Hamlets program was just like removing people from their ancestral homelands and putting them in these these hamlets. Uh, you know, the, the search and destroy missions, the, the, you know, basically shoot everything. The pacification program, right? They yeah. like that word, pacification, yeah. as if it was yeah. peaceful. Right. The, the, uh, the, uh, the, the Marines used to say, you know, uh, uh, it was called the hearts and minds approach, and they would say grab them by the, the testicles and their hearts and minds will follow. I mean, the United States only knew how to use violence, and it used more violence on this small country, more bombs, 4.6 million tons. And I just always pause for a second to let that sink in. 4.6 million tons of bombs were dropped uh, during the war on this small area, not just in Vietnam, too often, but also in Laos and Cambodia. The Plain of Jars, which is, you know, this, you know, ancestral homeland of the Lao people was just destroyed. It was uninhabitable. Uh, obviously, in Cambodia, you know, the country was just devastated and bombed, which enabled the, the Khmer Rouge to emerge. And um, in Vietnam, there were just craters and, and unexploded bombs. In Laos today, in 2023, there are 80 million unexploded bomblets in Laos today, in 2023. Um, so every year, thousands of people are dying throughout that whole region in Indochina because these unexploded bombs, farmers are out there, school kids. Um, it's just, it's, you know, the, the, uh, they use 20 million gallons of agent orange in Vietnam, 20 million gallons. And, you know, as you know, that the, the uh, you know, that gets into the, the groundwater and, you know, 50 years later, there are still children born in Vietnam yeah. who don't go to encephalopathy, you know, Vietnam vets have, have dealt with it. The children of Vietnam vets, incredibly high cancer rates when the war is still going on, uh, uh, because of this intense, firepower, you know, an attack on civilians, maybe perhaps 3 million Vietnamese died, mostly civilians, of course. Uh, you know, bomb... And, of course, the on. policy empowered the Khmer Rouge. We can't ever forget it, that, right? It, it facilitated, right. That was a small group until the U.S. started bombing and destroying Cambodia, and they emerged 
as the anti-American force there. So the Vietnamese were, I mean, the Cambodians had this dual tragedy, this horrific war crime by the Americans with the bombing and then the, the Khmer Rouge. That's what, that's what Nixon should have been prosecuted for, right? Yeah. That, that secret actually, war. In the first um, uh, uh, write-up, the first draft of the, the impeachment included the war in Cambodia, and they took it out, and there was this uh, a representative from Missouri, William Hungate, who said, you know, he was just incredulously said, you know, we're, we're going to impeach a guy for, for uh, tapping some telephones, but not for, you know, illegally bombing this country back to the Stone Age. Right. And, you know, and, and so, yeah, all that. Well, you know, once you start going after that, then everybody's complicit, right? I mean, every president and every every secretary of state, you know, so, um, you know, that you're going after Johnson, you're going after McNamara, you're going after Kennedy, you're going after Rusk, you're going after Nixon and Kissinger and everybody because they all did that. I mean, there really aren't any good guys in that regard. Yes. I mean, listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio, we're speaking with uh, Professor Robert Bazanko. He is uh, he teaches uh, U.S. foreign policy at the University of Houston. He is the host of the Green and Red podcast. And is the Chomsky up yet? Yeah, I think is that it's available? up now. Yes, I think it's available. Okay, so they've got a the wonderful interview with Noam Chomsky. You want to check that out at the uh, Green and Red podcast. Am I saying that in the right order? Green and Red podcast, yes? Okay, Green and Red podcast. And so when I said earlier that it, 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 the Vietnam War taught Americans how to protest, not just hyperbole. It started, we all, many of the people who listen to this show know who S. Brian Wilson is. He was mm-hmm. run over by a train protesting uh, wars uh, in, I believe that was uh, Salvador, El Salvador and Guatemala, Central yeah. America. Yeah. But he he learned, to, he was a captain in the in the Marines, I think, in the military, and he uh, became radicalized, transformed in Vietnam. And part of that transformation, when I say learning how to protest, is they the Buddhist monks began to mm-hmm. set themselves on fire to protest yes. the Vietnam War. And in the United States, that was portrayed as, as some kind of uh, insanity. But anybody mm-hmm. who understands the nature of protest understands that was the extreme act for the earth anyway yeah. you want to talk more about the protest and the winters all that stuff sure um yeah the famous immolation that you know i think sparked you know that i think that made americans aware of vietnam was in june of 1963 when a buddhist monk a immolated himself in saigon and that was on the front page of the paper so americans finally said oh my god what's going on there but i think seven americans here in the united states did the same thing the most famous was a Quaker named Norman Morrison, who immolated himself outside McNamara's office. You could, you know, back then Washington D.C. wasn't an armed camp. You could actually go up to the Pentagon and the White House and everything, and and if, you know, from McNamara could see it from the window where he he immolated himself. And I think a lot of people, you know, really were were stunned, obviously, by this, but began to realize what was happening, uh, you know, in Vietnam. And you know, it's around this time that you start to see teach-ins. Uh, groups like SBS began having teachings at campuses, and, you know, they were just hoping to get a few people involved, but there was, like, this incredible um, interest in it, in large measure, because, you know, kids on college campuses had a draft card in their wallet. So it was it was real for them. Um, and then you had people like, you know, the Scott Lind, who died last a few months ago, we talked about him, was active 
uh, Noam Chomsky. You know, they, they made trips to Vietnam. Tom Hayden, David Dellinger, people like that would go to Vietnam and come back later. People like Jane Fonda would go there and come back and, and talk about it. And then, you know, the movement spread into the military, as you pointed out, which I think is huge. And that's a story that really needs to be out there because uh, Brian Wilson, I'm familiar with him. I only met him once or twice. And I do follow him, and, and it's a really moving story, you know, and, and it's a story I've heard from a lot of veterans who, you know, went there, they were gung-ho, they volunteered, they wanted to kill communists, and after being there and seeing the Vietnamese people who were simply defending their homeland, you know, this very poor peasant nation in the United States, you know, is just destroying it, and, you know, they were thinking, like, why are we here? You know, why are we killing these people? Why are we risking our lives? And you started to see a significant movement inside the military just refusing to fight massive drug use fragging their officers and then they came home and formed like vvaw which is arguably the most important anti-war group in that era and you know and today we still have veterans for peace and groups like that which are really important in the movement you have to correct me if i'm wrong i'm, I'm almost positive that brian wilson a captain in vietnam uh, went to the same high school as Norman Morrison, and wow, and he—I—I I, I, we have to confirm that I'm almost positive, though. Uh, but he clearly, uh, he, Norman Morrison, and that action, uh, sort of uniting with the monks uh, in Southeast Asia, was extraordinary. And and Brian talked a, a lot about it. By the way, just as a an aside, a very incredibly beautiful story, is after Brian was run over, he got his prosthetics, and uh, he was at an action in New York, uh, Vietnam Veterans Against the War. And my friend, my friend, Chayla Blitt, was the first person who danced with him. It was the first time he danced with (laughs) with the... (laughs) Yeah, that was a radio show. Anyway, you are speaking of radio. You're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio, and uh, we're speaking uh, about the impacts of the Vietnam War some 50 years after. We're speaking with Professor Robert Bazanko. He uh, co-hosts the Green and Red podcast. He uh, teaches at the University of Houston, and um, well, I'm thinking of the Winter Soldier investigation. Mm-hmm. That's one of the things that turned my mind around. Then there was the senator. Why am I... He ran for president, and I'm blanking on his name. Former Vietnam... Head of the Vietnam Veterans Against the War. Oh, John Kerry. Senator... Yeah, John Kerry. Sorry about that. John Kerry, what... You know, one of the things that... And it makes me cry now. I'm a crybaby anyway, but his speech... When he threw back his medals on the Winter Soldier investigation, he gave a most extraordinary speech. I think they let him speak before Congress. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but did. it changed my yeah. mind. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah absolutely, yeah. The Senate Foreign Relations Committee is very powerful. He gave his testimony, and you know, he basically at the end he said, you know, generations from now, kids are going to see us walking down the street without legs and without limbs, and they're going to ask, why and we'll say Vietnam and then we'll say that's the place where America turned. That's where America and we're here to make yes. it turn to make change. It's very powerful and that's a very a very moving and important you know um, 
protest against the Vietnam War because you have these soldiers throwing their medals back. I mean, my first book is about military dissent. And, um, you know, there were, there were significant elements of the military who did not want to fight in Vietnam, thought it was a bad idea, thought it wasn't going well, didn't want to be there um, because they understood, you know, this is a guerrilla war, a nationalist war, a committed, you know, dedicated people. The United States is simply, you know, an imperial power. And the Americans never... You know, have trouble dealing with that idea that the U.S. is an empire and it goes in and it and it does things that empires do. It fights these brutal, bloody wars. These are kind of like occupation wars. You know, where you know it's it's no different than the Europeans were doing in in Africa or Asia or anywhere else. And Americans don't want to. You know, the like a few years ago, you know, um, the PBS had that big special with Ken Burns. You know, which was wildly popular, and the whole theme of it was, you know, the Americans had the best of intentions. You know, and they wanted to do well, and they made mistakes. You know, and you know, and I think yeah. that's the typical. That's what I believe. Oh, we would never. Oh, Ken Burns. <laughs> yeah, uh, John Pilger <laughs> uh, burned Ken Burns a second, whatever. Uh, listen, yeah. we're just about out of time. What are the what of what are the your favorite books that you wrote? that you'd like our listeners to know about? Well, my first book is called Masters of War, Military Dissent and Politics in the Vietnam Era. Um, I mean, obviously, anything Noam Chomsky has written. Uh, Gabriel Kolko, who was a, a fantastic radical historian, I wrote a great book called Anatomy of War about Vietnam. Marilyn Young, probably somebody you're familiar with uh, from NYU, wrote a great book called The Vietnam Wars. Yeah. Um, George K and K A H I N, who's uh, from Cornell, unfortunately, except for Noam, all these people have, have passed on, uh, have, has written great stuff. But there's good stuff out there. But yeah, you don't, I mean, unfortunately, most of what you get, like in, in PBS from Ken Burns or the New York Times, is not going to be that realistic analysis that really tells you the truth about it. And, you know, hopefully we can learn from it. You know. I mean, the United States is still, you know, right. getting involved in other places. I mean, right now the media is not covering Peru, which is just ghastly what's happening there. Well, we're covering it. I can tell you that. Oh, I know. No, no, anyway. I don't mean that. I know no, 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 no I know. I know. Yeah. We're at it. I'm sorry, but we're out of time. I want to thank you very much. This was wonderful. I'm going to come back and extend this conversation. And people should check out your interview with Noam Chomsky uh, on the Green and Red podcast. Thank you, Bob. Be safe. Thank you. Great. Thank you. That's it.